0: let's pray once more father as we once again come to your word as we as we uh, reflect upon uh, the character of christ the nature of the gospel lord may he be first and foremost prominent in everything we do and say and lord so so often we hear uh, talk about we hear talk about it being all about jesus but lord um Help us to understand who He is, uh, what He does, why it matters so much that the church be focused on Christ, and that in focusing in Christ we we be about the gospel, um, the good news of Christ. We pray all of this in His name. Amen. I invite you to, to turn to the Book of Colossians, chapter one, and and uh, verse. And we're we're going to begin in verse fifteen we 've been we 've been talking about the subject of the gospel since the beginning of the year, um, and uh, really emphasizing the idea that the gospel when we talk about the gospel it, it is not just about the presentation of an intellectual set of beliefs but rather it is really about it, the fundamental to the church is the nature of Jesus Christ, who He is and so when we talk about the Gospel, we have to talk about jesus we 've been talking about grace we 've been talking about uh, Revelation. Um, but this morning we're going to get into uh, what is one of Paul's great Christological passages. Now, Christological just is a big uh, theological shorthand, uh, which means thoughts about Christ or the teachings of Christ, teachings about Christ. Christos, logos, two Greek words. Um, it's the theology of Christ. And so this is one of Paul's, uh, this is one of the biggies. Right? This is one of the big passages of Scripture. And we could literally spend months talking about just these couple of verses. We're not going to do that. Um, I assume some of you have meals that you would like to get to eventually, so uh, we won't spend months on it. But I do want to I I talk about it. And I want to talk about the structure of it and what Paul is saying. So Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now we're going to talk about our our place in that in verse 21 uh, when we, we, we get there next week. But um, I want to take this passage and I want to break it down um, into uh, basically there's, three sections and they're all interrelated. And if you're taking notes, you can diagram this however you want, but, but I want to break this passage down so that we understand what is being said. Uh, Each section, each of the first two sections start with an assertion about Christ. Now in verse 12, we get the assertion, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, when we read that, we should immediately be struck by the paradox that is in that sentence. What's the paradox in that sentence? They say, what's a paradox? Well, it's Doc and, and me after I get my PhD standing together. Um, but, but what is a paradox? What is a paradox? All right. Image of the invisible. Those two things are not compatible. An image, by definition, is something we do what? See. So Paul is immediately setting up a paradox, a mystery. He says he is the image. The Greek word is ikon or icon. He is the, the image of the invisible God. So Christ is the revelation of God to the world. The incarnation is God being revealed to mankind, the invisible God presented, represented. Now, it's important that we understand this when we talk about this, that an icon, an image, uh, does not, is not everything that the thing is, Okay. So when we look at Jesus, we cannot see everything that God, Jesus is as God, the son, the son of God. Okay. It is a representation. Uh, There's a, there's a old story. There's a story that was written by Lewis Carroll about these two, uh, these two kids are going around London. They're meeting all kinds of really intelligent people and they meet this man. They just call the German. Now, in the 1800s, if you were the German, it meant that you were, um, like, so, sm- so smart you were useless. Kinda. That was kind of the idea. Um, and and um, they meet the German, and the German, at, they, they have a map. These two kids have a, a map of London that they're using to get around. He says, oh, he says, in my, in my country, we make the best maps. Our maps are so perfect that every bit of elevation every every piece of the of the land is depicted perfectly in a 1 to 1 scale it's amazing there's only two problems number 1 the map the farmers complain because the map keeps the rain from falling on their crops and number 2 it's hard to fold and put in your pocket and if you think about what he's talking about something that is completely every detail of the thing it's meant to represent it would be as big as the thing itself you know Uh, and, and so so this idea when jesus is the revealed icon the image of god we have to understand that what we see in jesus is what we can see in jesus but jesus is much more than we could ever perceive and paul starts to unpack that in the, in, the, in the following passages, but I want to give you the second line of this, all right? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip down. I want to give you the structure. So if you're taking notes, you can write the image of the invisible God, all right? And then skip down a little bit to verse 18 where he says, He is the head of the body, the church. So here are two assertions about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, and he is the head of the body, the The church. Um, So interestingly, if you think about when Paul is talking about this, he's created two paradoxes. First is the image of the invisible. The second is an invisible head of a visible body because Jesus is resurrected at this point. Jesus isn't present, uh, like physically present. So he is the invisible head of the visible body, but he's also the visible representation of the invisible God. So not only are there paradoxes, the paradoxes are paradoxes. All right, so that's a paradox squared. Carry the six, negative one. I don't don't know what the math is, but, but he's creating this paradox. Why does Paul do this, by the way? I think this is important that we understand that when... Paul uses this kind of confusing language, it's a lesson for us, that what he is talking about is bigger than he can talk about it. He can't put to words what is going on with who Jesus is, okay? Um, so he's intentionally creating these paradoxes. Paul knew these were paradoxes. Paul did not sit down and go, the image of the invisible God. Everybody's going to get that. That'll be perfect. He intentionally creates a paradox that we cannot resolve. And we as human beings, we love to resolve things. We do not like when things hang dissonant. Um, now, some of us have different levels of that. She's down in the nursery right now, but my daughter has picked up a, 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 a trait that I have. Um, Ariel, once every couple of months, goes into her her account, her her savings account where she's saving her money for college, and evens it out from money in the checking account so that it's exactly $3,800 or exactly $4,100. She can't leave change. She has to even it out. Now, what's funny is when I kept a physical checkbook, which I haven't done for years, but when I kept a physical checkbook, I entered all transactions as even numbers, I like uh, as as rounded numbers. I never did that was thirty nine dollars and ninety seven cents. I wrote forty dollars I just I was like the math was easier. It was too complicated do all those decimals I'm just gonna write even numbers. It was and and I still do that I go to the gas station and when I'm pumping gas. I'm one of those people It's like got to get it to twenty five fifty seventy five or zero. I can't have no thirty two dollars and forty six cents worth of gas it's got to even out and if i miss it used to be hard when gas was cheap it was really hard to get to the next one now it's not so hard you can <laughs> you can barely put any gas in at all and it goes right to 20 25 more cents um but but some people are like that they just you know we 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 have to resolve things we can't leave things hanging um and And humans tend to be like that, but Paul is willing to allow things to be suspended in the mystery. He allows the truth to be suspended in the paradox, which is uh, interesting. But when we look at this, we say the image of the invisible God. Well, what is that? That is Jesus's relationship to God as we look to him. So I want to understand we're talking from our perspective looking out to see God, who do we look to? We look to Jesus. Jesus is not the end of what we're looking for, the physical life of Jesus. The gospel is not the end of what we're looking for, but rather he is the icon by which we look and see the fullness of God. He is the image of the invisible God, but then secondly, he is the head of the church. Well, that is uh, our relationship To Christ, all right, it is God looking down to us. You say, why is that so important? Now, there's other things going on in the head of the church. There's a lot of theology behind that. But remember that we are only allowed to stand in the presence of God because of the grace of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins we have in him. And the head of the church is the one who determines how the church operates. I don't know about you, I've never been able to operate well without my head. I tend to, tend to not do so great when I don't have my head. Um, and so the head of the church, that, that when God looks down and sees the church, what he sees is what Christ is the head of. Now, Baptists broke with thousands of years of Christian theology, uh, well, centuries of of Christian theology, when we said the church is not the people who are on the piece of paper that is the rolls. The church is not the people who were baptized when their parents decided to baptize them. The church is not the people that finance things or the people who, who pay for the priests. The church is those who are found in Christ. Now, the Baptists did that. That's why historically, theologically, I'm a Baptist. The Baptists were the first group to stand up and say, no, the membership of the church is not determined by whether you were baptized as a baby or not. The membership of the church is not determined by whether you have a pew with your family's name on it. The membership of the church is determined by who is in Christ. You have to be a follower of Jesus. You have to have made a profession of faith in order to be a member of the church. Now, today we think that that's just standard fare when you come to join our membership, we ask you, are you a follower of Christ? But back in the day, that was not the way it went. You know, all these white churches that weren't white when they were built in the 17 and 1800s all over New England, those churches, you did not have to be a believer in order to be a member of that church. You just had to be a citizen of the town that got baptized there. And so there were churches Filled with people that were living like Satan Sunday, uh, Sunday afternoon through Saturday night. But on Sunday morning, put up their, put on their dress best clothes. Walked to church. And I wish I was making this up, but I'm not. Unlocked the door on their pew. Slid in, because you don't want the riffraff sitting in your pew with you. You had paid for that. Slid in, sat down, listened to an incredibly boring sermon by a guy in a dress. And then left. <laughs> that was what church was. And then guys like uh, Hezekiah Smith, um, who was a, 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 a traveling preacher who spread all over New England. He, he led congregations everywhere from uh, 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 Pittsburgh in northern New Hampshire all the way over to um, Kittery, Maine, all the way out down to Worcester, Massachusetts, Dedham, Massachusetts, and he rode horses. He kept losing them. It's, reading his diary is amazing. The guy keep, kept forgetting to tie the horses down. But he, he, would, he literally traveled around New England. He was a Baptist pastor traveling around New England, showing up in towns and saying, I'm going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the leaders of churches running the man out of town because he was going to wreck their attendance. Because once people heard about Jesus, they didn't want to be a part of their churches anymore. They wanted to be baptized as believers in Christ and be a part of the church. Baptists started that. Now, that's one of the reasons I'm not, I'm not afraid to call myself a Baptist with a little b. I'm not a Baptist with a capital B. Those are members of, of denominations. That's always bothered me. I'm a Baptist with a little b. I believe in, in that the church is composed of the followers of Christ. And you know when God looks down and looks at the church, you know what he sees? He does not see what we call church, which tends to be, and I talk about we are society, which people tend to look down and say, well, the church is abusive, the church is this, the church is that, the church is manipulative. Guess what? Christ doesn't see that as the church. The organizations are not the church. The church is the network of believers brought together by the Holy Spirit to accomplish the work of the gospel. So he's the head of the church. Now, I want to go back up. We started with this. He's the image of the invisible God. That's us looking at God. We see God through Jesus. Then the church, He is that is God looking down through Christ to see us. But then in verse 16, for by him, so this is under imag- image of the invisible God, for by him all things were created in him. He was the firstborn, verse 15, the firstborn of all creation. Now, some some groups, take that and say, well, see, Jesus was created because he's the firstborn of all creation. That is not Paul's point. He is not saying firstborn chronologically. He is saying firstborn in terms of authority and preeminence because the firstborn in the Greek world was not even necessarily the first kid born. I know that sounds paradoxical. Get used to it. Paul loves paradoxes. It was the one that the father chose to be, the firstborn, and declared to be the firstborn. So he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, let me ask you a weird abstract question. Is creation an up or a down process? It's an abstract question. I want you to think about it. Does creation go up or go down? All right, well, we talk about the earth's creation. I mean the process of creation, not, not creation itself. Is the process of creation something that goes up or goes down? Sideways. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> creation is a process of taking something that is, that is not and making something that is. So abstractly, that's an up process. That's something that takes something and makes it some, takes nothing and makes it something that's building up. We could say building up. And I I, I intentionally didn't say the word build because I wanted us to kind of process that. Alright? So he's the firstborn of creation. He's the firstborn of let's put another word into it. He's the firstborn of life giving. Of the firstborn of living the firstborn of purpose, the firstborn of order, the firstborn of God's intention with us. He's the firstborn of all creation. Now, Paul then goes, goes ahead. Again, paradox. How does the firstborn of creation, if we're talking that he's part of creation, how does the firstborn then create everything? He can't. If, if he is part of the creation, he cannot create all things because then he would have to create himself, which paradoxically makes him something else. <laughs> for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is, and although it says before, I'm going to give you a little bit of a, a little bit of a dynamic translation. He is um, the Archetype of all things, and in all him, in him, all things hold together. My father once. Uh, now, I think this was a cop out. I was homeschooled, um, and my dad only knew so much science. Now he knew a lot more science than I know now. Um, but a, at one point, we were talking about subatomic particles. You know, um, like fathers and sons do. And um, we were we were talking about these subatomic particles and kind of having a discussion about it. And I said, but dad. What holds the protons, electrons, and neutrons together? And he, without skipping a beat, said, Christ, next question. <laughs> and he quoted this verse. It's like, by him, he holds all things together. Um, now, I could tell you now, having been a physics teacher, I could tell you, that's scary that I taught physics, but um, I can tell you why they held together. But his, his, his point is, he is preeminent over all things, And all things are dependent upon him in the sense of, and remember, he is the icon of the invisible God. So when we look at Jesus, we see God holding the universe together, the rhyme and reason of all things. But then in verse 18, he gives us this second one that we talked about. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now is dying an up or a down process? Down. Now it's resurrecting is an up process. Dying is a down process, right? Dying is a down process. So here we have him being the firstborn of the build up and we have him the firstborn from the tear down. Now not of the tear down, from the tear down. Okay? So if everything either goes up or down from one person, what is that one person? The center. The center. If all things are created by him, and he is the firstborn from the dead, he is the contr- he's in control of the building up, and he's in control of the building down, then he is the middle, the center point of the entire thing. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, that's kind of Paul's conclusion of the two sections. He says, look, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. He's the head of the church. He's the firstborn from the dead. So that in him, all right, in everything, he might be preeminent. Now, the third section of the the passage is in verse 19. I feel so old when I have to keep putting these on. Um, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, I want everybody to hit that preposition at the beginning. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then in verse 20, the next preposition. And through him... To reconcile to himself all things. Remember our two perspectives. Us looking up to God through the icon Jesus. What do we see? The fullness of God. What we know of God we know because we know Jesus. Now. That sounds really weird when you consider that 39 of the books of the Bible were written before Jesus was born. But I would propose to you that there is not a scrap of the Old Testament that does not um, point us toward Christ. The dissonance resolves in Him. So in Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So as we look up, To to God, we see through Christ, he is the icon, he is the fullness, he is everything. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things. When God looks down, he sees all things that will be redeemed, reconciled, restored, transformed. He sees all of them in Christ. Really what we have in this passage, let me just hit that last bit, whether in heaven or on earth, so he covers everything, making peace by the blood of his cross. What is the dividing line between life and death? It is the cross of Jesus Christ. What is the center point? Of the restoration of creation, which is fallen and dying, it is the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, for a long time, and and anyone who went through seminary, I'm sure Ray g- can talk about this too. But for a long time, there was talk about how the cross was not an early symbol of Christianity. What was the and what are we always told that the early symbol of Christianity was? Do you guys know? The fish and the bread, everybody's the fish and the bread. The fish was the early symbol of Christianity. Now, there were, there's no doubt, there were fish symbols that were used as secret marks for Christians. Um, uh, however, I will tell you this, that when I was in Israel at a dig in Nazareth beneath a what was apparently a very early Christian home, there is a stone that has a, a Christian inscription on it that looks like a bunch of, looks like a, uh, like a um, like a, a saw blade almost, and at the center of it is a cross, and it dates from the first century. Now, I got no problem with the fish being a physical sign that Christians put up, but let me tell you something: Paul did not say by the blood of his fish. <laughs> he said by the blood of his cross. All right, the symbol of Christ's work for Paul at least, and I'm going to go with him, was the cross. What's going on in this passage? We are seeing who Jesus is and what Jesus does and why it's at the center of the church. Why who he is, the image of the invisible God, the fullness of God dwelling to among us, the creator and sustainer of all things, who he is and what he does, the head of the church, um, the reconciler of uh, all things to himself, whether in heaven or on earth. Those things sit at the center of the gospel. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot one more time for effect, Eric. You cannot have the church or the gospel or Christian truth or doctrine or theology without a full, robust understanding of Jesus as God the Son, God Son of God, second person of the Godhead. Uh, One in essence and yet distinct in person from the father who came to earth Lived as man was tempted as we are 100% God 100% man Died on a cross for the sins of man was resurrected to bring life to all who will call on his name You cannot have the church You cannot have Christianity, you cannot have theology, you cannot have doctrine, you cannot have lives transformed without him. And yet all across the world, there are people preaching a version of Christianity where Jesus is just the means to an end rather than the center of the universe. And you have to be careful about false gospels that just use Jesus to get what we want. And so much of the Christian industrial complex, so many of the books that you will find at a Christian bookstore, Jesus is being used to get what I want. I mean, we slap his name on just about anything because it'll sell better that way. We come up with all kinds of curious little bits and pieces, all, all these little Christian tchotchkes. And I'm sorry if I, I offend people. I just have this thing. I'm allergic to Christian marketing. Whenever I go in a Christian bookstore, it, it always terrifies me to see... Uh, oh, not the veggie Tales. They make me laugh. They're only... <laughs> They're only vaguely Christian sometimes, anyway. Um, Having to convince a group of high schoolers that, uh, what was it, that, um, that, uh, was it uh, Joshua and the wall that they're all wearing pots on their heads or something like that, like the Canaanites. I'm like, Canaanites didn't wear pots on their heads. And I got high school freshmen going, what? Um, But when I see testaments and they're little Bible verses with cheap, not very good, uh, It's mint flavors on them. Um, Or my personal favorite is Bible rocks. Now, I don't know if you guys have seen these. They're rocks with a Bible verse painted on it. You're supposed to carry in your pocket. Are we going to fight Philistine giants? I don't want a Bible verse stuffed in my pocket. I want a Bible verse stuffed in my head. Not the rock. I don't want the rock stuffed in my head. I want the Bible verse in my head. I, I, the, all this marketing. And 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 I could tell you a hundred books that I have on my shelf that get the Jesus stuff out of the way so they can tell you how to build a better church. Like, yeah, hey, yeah, yeah, Jesus, Jesus. Yeah, but he's important. Here's the gospel. Here's the chapter on the gospel. Here's the business. The church is about Jesus. And you can't have it without him. That's one of the reasons, by the way, we shifted communion to be every week. Because communion is about the presence of Jesus in the church. Who is Jesus to you? And does it align with who he was to Paul? What does Jesus do for you? And does it align with what the Apostle Paul says? My dad one time drew a diagram for me. He drew a circle. He said, here's your life. He goes, and this was when I was in college, by the way. I was in Bible college. He says, here's your life. He says, here's where Jesus is supposed to be. You put a dot in the middle. He goes, and here's where Jesus is to you. And he put it on the outside. He said, you say all the good words. You have all the right stuff. You do all the right things now. I hadn't previously, but I was then. he said, but you will never truly, you will never truly serve him until he is in the middle. Now, remember that story I told you about the atoms? My dad kind of skirted the question by just saying Christ held them all together. You know what my follow-up question to this diagram that he drew for me was? Well, how do I get him from here to there? My dad, without missing a beat, said, that's your problem. <laughs> Some of the best advice he ever gave me. Because it wasn't about following a template or an idea or a plan or a strategy. It was just about getting Jesus to the middle, to the center of who I am. Now, I'm not going to say that I always keep him there. There's a little bit of wobble going on there. He bumps out from time to time, and i got I to get drawn back. But I will tell you that a passage like this rocks the world of a believer and says, let's get back I want, to, I want to make sure that this is what I'm living. This theology makes my action. All action flows from belief. So this needs to be my belief. This I, I take this to be true. And I live my life as if my life depends upon Christ being the center of it because it does. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Jesus, I speak to you. May you always be the center of who we are as a church. As parents, as, as employees, as workers, as children, as grandparents, as friends, as every relationship we have, Lord, help us to be focused on having you at the center. But in order for us to do that, Jesus, we have to know when things are out of alignment. We have to know when we're losing our focus on you. And Lord, so we ask for your Holy Spirit to adjust us, to awaken us, to chasten us, to transform us, to alter us, to renew us, to revive us, to do whatever it takes. And Lord, help us to be yielded to His voice in the Word and in His people. That we might look to You at the center of our being. And God, might, God the Father might look down upon us through You as our head. All things consist, exist because of You. You hold all things together. Hold us together, Jesus. Shift us as we need to be that we're focused on you. We pray this in your name.